deep breaths. Some of you know that uh, just this year I started being a high school teacher at 60 years old. And I taught Spanish this year for high school. I taught high school Spanish. But you might be uh, a little bit interested to know or surprised that I don't put a lot of confidence in high school Spanish. I don't put a lot of stock in it. And yet, I'm actually teaching it. It's a strange thing. You can go through two years of high school Spanish, and that I find that a lot of my students end up with hardly anything as far as their abilities to communicate with someone who speaks Spanish. This happened to me when uh, I had two years of high school Spanish, and uh, our church was looking for a couple of young guys to go on a short-term mission trip into the jungles of Guatemala to help a missionary there cut lumber for a medical facility. So a couple of us volunteered, and we had both had Spanish in high school, and we thought we were big stuff with Spanish, you know, taco and ola, and we knew all the words. So we decided instead of flying down to Guatemala, we're going to travel by bus and train, and we're going to take uh, the longer route. So we uh, took, we got on the train, switched from the train in Mexico City to the bus. And uh, the bus came to the border of Guatemala and Mexico. Now, some of the things we did not know, which we should have known, were one, that Guatemala was in the middle of a civil war. We had no clue. <laughs> so we were not uh, thinking war stuff at all. And uh, we had no idea about the culture and the practices. We thought all you have to do is learn the words. So we got to the border of Guatemala and Mexico and we were crossing the border and we saw a lot of soldiers standing around with with uh, automatic weapons and uh, they stopped the bus and they looked down below and the baggage part of the bus and they noticed something they didn't like or they were curious about. So one of the soldiers, we're sitting about, we're probably sitting about halfway or maybe three quarters of the way back in the bus. One of the soldiers gets on to the front of the bus and he has his rifle hanging around his neck and he gets on the bus and he says, in Spanish, of course, but that's how it sounded to me and my friend. He's like, so we're sitting there. We're going, yeah, he's, well, just let him do what he wants to do. And he says it again, and he's looking in our direction. And so we're kind of looking at each other. We're looking at other people and we're thinking, oh, he maybe wants to talk to us. So he says it one more time and he's really looking at us strongly now. So both of us stand up. And one of the things that you need to know that if you're learning another language and you're going to another country, there is also different body language in those countries. They don't do all the same things that we do as far as body language. But we didn't know that. So we stood up and he's looking at us and he goes like this. 
In Latin America, this means come here. You could do this, you could do this. In our minds, this means sit down. So he's looking at us, he goes like this. So we sit back down. And we're, we're like, who got out of that one? Uh, and he starts yelling more. And we're like, and we're getting more confused. Everybody's a little getting, getting more panicky on the bus. And so we stand up again. And he looks at us and he yells and he goes like that. And we sit back down. Because we want to do exactly what he wants us to do. And then he grabs his rifle and he is pointing his rifle in our direction and we are totally panicking. We have no idea what he wants. He's, he's pointing his rifle at us and everybody in the bus, everybody else in the bus takes over, starts grabbing us. They all get up, they grab us, they shove us into the aisle and they push us down the aisle of the bus. So, Cause they don't want to get shot either. So, we go outside the bus, we go down, he wants to look in our bags. We have this giant sledgehammer that we're bringing to the missionary in the jungle. And the, the handle is sticking out of the bag. And he just looks at it and he's like, okay. And he lets us get back on the bus. Later on, I learned Spanish by uh, a, a, a technique or a way that's called immersion in which you put yourself inside the culture with the people that speak the language and you spend an intensive amount of time with them all day long. You live with a family that speaks Spanish and you learn Spanish. In one month of intensive Spanish, I learned more than two years of high school Spanish. Well, we've been talking in the church in the last probably four or six weeks, we've been talking about the Lord's Prayer. And I want to tell you, just saying the Lord's Prayer, I don't put much confidence in it. It may sound funny from a preacher. I don't put much confidence in the Lord's Prayer unless the person who's praying that prayer has given themselves over to an immersion in the culture of the kingdom, in the understanding of the kingdom, in the life of the kingdom. So today I'm gonna to talk about parts of the Lord's Prayer. The part specifically is, give us this day our daily bread. And I'm gonna talk about that in terms of two ways. The, and I'm gonna use these hand signals from Mexico. This is gonna be, they're gonna be the same hand signal, but in some of us, in the, when we uh, hear the Lord's Prayer, we hear the sit version. And so we, we say the Lord's Prayer, we hear it, and we sit down. But God really wants us to hear the come version. So you got the sit version versus the come version. The first part of the Lord's Prayer, uh, of this passage, of this sentence, says, give us. Give us. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I used to pray this prayer, I would get to the part that says, give us this day our daily bread. And I would kind of move through it. I would think, I've got, I've got a good job. I've got money in the bank. Heck, I just went to King's Supers, got all the food I need. My pantry is full. 
and in praying, give us this day our daily bread. I don't get it. So there's two ways that the sit version handles the Lord's prayer in terms of this. One is it glosses over it. I, sometimes I would just gloss over that phrase. I knew that I had some, pro, I knew I had need when I got to the forgive us our debts or our sins part, but I didn't think, oh, I got my daily bread. I don't need to, I don't really need to pray this that much. It's good. The other response to this in the sit version, which is a step in the right direction, is to give thanks. Oh, thank you, God, that I have my pantry full. Thank you that there's King Supers down there. Thank you that my wife is a wonderful cook. And that's a step in the right direction, but I think that's still part of the sit version of the prayer. In the come version of the prayer where God says, come, when you're immersed in the lifestyle for the kingdom and you're praying the Lord's prayer, eventually you come around to realizing that the word give is the same word as grace and the same word as gift. And the more you allow God to show you this, God will say, you know what, Dan, or you know what? Everything is everything essential for human life is a gift from God, is a gift from me, God will say. Everything essential for life is a gift. So the more you pray, give us, the more you realize everything I have, everything I am, everything that is great and good about me is a gift. You might think, well, but I work for my money. I went to college. I've been wise with my money. I, I'm a good saver. I, I've managed my inheritance well. You know, it's partly me. I've I done this. But on the other hand, you might think, I have no way to claim responsibility for my DNA, for my abilities for my uh, strength, for my body, for the fact that I was born in this country as opposed to another country, for my race or my sex, I have nothing to do with that. That was given to me from the start. It's a gift. I'm gonna tell you a story about a woman named Diane well, I used to be a pastor in, uh, in Nevada, in northern Nevada. And uh, I, when I went to go be a pastor there, one of the things I started because I really am connected with uh, Spanish and Mexican, Mexico a lot, I decided to take the youth group to Mexico. And so we did Mexico trips. One of the, however, one of the rumors and one of the complaints that I heard circling the church was, I don't know why he's taking the kids to Mexico. We got a lot of needy people right here in the United States. He should be doing work in America, not taking them over there. So I heard this from several people. So I decide, okay, we're going to do something right here. So I get connected with a thrift store that worked with disabled adults. And it's called Ruby Mountain. 
and I set up a whole thing that we're gonna work together as a congregation with Ruby Mountain to better the lives of these disabled adults. So we start this program up and, and every week I start going to Ruby Mountain, like every Wednesday, I think it was. Every week I was going to Ruby Mountain. Um, never mind that I was probably the only one going, but <laughs> there was a, maybe one or two other people sometimes. But it ended up to where I'm going to Ruby Mountain to do something for people in the United States as well. But I got to know the people at Ruby Mountain really well. And I started hearing their stories. And they gave, there's a lot of stories, but this story I'm going to share today is Diane. This was a woman about my age uh, at that time, which was probably 45, maybe around there. And uh, Diane told me her story one day. She worked in the thrift store. She was severely mentally disabled. And basically, she couldn't do much of anything but hang clothes on hangers, and that was really hard for her. But she did tell me her story one day. She trusted me, and she said, she said, Dan, I was okay before I graduated from high school. I had really good grades. I was ready to go off to a, a, a nice college. I had a, a boyfriend that was closer than a boyfriend. We, we were actually engaged to be married. And he, this, at, this was right after high school. We were engaged to be married and he was gonna marry me. My life was gonna be fantastic. And then she said, one day, my boyfriend and some of his friends came over and we decided to go out for a drive. And the drive turned into a joyride. And she said, we had a horrible accident. I was in the hospital, unconscious, in a coma for months. She completely changed her life overnight. Her boyfriend, or her fiance, took his ring back, no longer married her. She was going to be alone for the rest of her life as far as that. She didn't get to go to college. Her whole life was changed. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, give us, what you need to know is we are not much different from Diane. We are not much different from Diane. And in fact, the more you pray this, you realize I'm not much different from the farmer in Bangladesh who is raising his crop and a monsoon or hail hits and it destroys his entire crop and he has no food for the next year and he has to decide which of my kids am I going to sell so the family can live. We're no different. We're no different from him. We're no different from Diane. So the first part of the Lord prayer, when you pray, give us, it's important to know your whole existence depends on God's grace. 
Now, as Protestants, we believe we're really strong with what Paul says, you are saved by faith, you are saved by grace and not by works. That's huge for us, and it's true. We're saved by grace and not for works, that we go to heaven because, or we go to the new kingdom because of grace. What you don't realize, and what I often didn't realize, was that we are alive before we're saved, ever saved. We were created by grace. We exist by grace. It's not like we move from works to grace. We move from grace to grace. God gives us everything. The second part, well, actually, it's just still the first part of the prayer, give us. I think the us kind of throws us off. Who are the us? I don't know about you. I used to pray this prayer, and and still sometimes I pray this prayer, and I think of me. Give me this day my daily bread. Forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. But the word is us. In fact, it starts out in the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, our Father. So this is all, this is a corporate prayer. This is a community prayer. Now, the sit version of this prayer is, we translate the sit version as, uh, we automatically translate the plurals in the prayer to individuals or personal, give me. So we translate us to me, our to, uh, to mine. And that's the sit version of the prayer. But it's really crucial that as you live in concert with this prayer, as you pray it and you form your lifestyle along with the prayer, that you understand that the us is very big. In fact, the more that I studied this, the more I realized that Not only does God give us everything, but God gives everything to us, and us is everybody. So God gives everything to everybody. I believe that Jesus is telling us to pray for the world. God, give us humanity. Give us the church. Give us our community. Give us humanity our daily bread. Now, my, uh, my daughter, has, uh, she has a pet snake. She's got a little pet yellow albino snake thing. And it lives in this container. And this snake uh, sleeps most of the time and it crawls around over the rocks and through the little jungly part and once in a while. And it'll stop and... And it'll do all the things. It'll shed its skin. And it, I'm sure that this snake thinks, man, I'm living my life. I'm really, uh, I'm really working hard here. And um, I deserve what I get. And so when, when my daughter puts a little mouse or rat in there, the little thing basically on a platter, you know, it stocks it and then it grabs it and eats it. And maybe the snake inside thinks, man, I, 
I really worked hard for that. And that was all for me because I'm the only one that lives here. But my daughter knows a different story, right? She's the one that goes to to the pet store and she gets it and she gets it already and she puts everything in there necessary. She puts the lights, the sun and the moon over the snake so that it's warm when it needs to be. It's about perspective. I brought a loaf of bread today as part of my props. This isn't for communion. This is just bread. Um, And when God gives us our daily bread, I picture it like this, that God takes, and let's, let's imagine that the table is the world. So the table's not just your table or my table. The table is the world. And God says, and we pray, give us our, day, our daily bread. So God says, okay, here's your daily bread world for today. And what ends up happening in the world is that some parts of the world, we grab our bread or we think that we worked for it and we, made it, uh, we deserve it. And so we take it and we put it in front of us. And then other parts of the world maybe get a little bit of a bread. And yet this is the daily bread for the world. If any of our kids did this at breakfast or dinner, they'd be in a timeout in their room for the, at the least. But this is how it works out in our world without us even knowing that it's happening. We're just used to our culture and the way things are and our economics and we, we don't even think about it. But the more you live the life that Christ is calling you to and the more you pray this prayer in a circle with that life, the more you come to realize this is everybody's bread. This is everybody's bread. Let me read you a quote from the early church. And this was regular, this was regular uh, sermon fare in the early church about this. Let me read you a quote from St. Basil. And uh, this is a, a quote out of a book by Howard, Stanley Hauerwas and Will Williman. But they start out by uh, describing this first. St. Basil the Great made explicit in a sermon that nothing that belongs to us is ours alone particularly that which we have in excess of our daily bread. And then this is the quote from his sermon. The bread that spoils in your houses belongs to the hungry. The shoes that are mildewing under your bed belong to those who have none. The clothes stored up in your trunk belong to those who are naked. The money that depreciates in your treasury belongs to to the poor. Our bread is not ours to hoard. This is Hauerwas again. Our bread is not ours to hoard. Our bread belongs to our sisters and our brothers. Lord, teach us the Lord's prayer and the Christian life. 
Oh, that's the title of the book. <laughs> so, now I'm not giving this so that you, you end up going, oh, I feel so guilty. I'm not saying this for that reason. I'm trying to point out that in the first 300, 400 years of the church, you would go uh, on Sunday to meet with the body of Christ and that would be a regular topic of the sermon that everything that God gives today is for everybody. The third part of this that I think comes to be discovered as we uh, pray this prayer is that we realize that everything is a gift. God has given us everything. That everything is for everybody. So the more you pray this prayer, the more you end up realizing God, at least in our situation, God wants me to become a bread giver. God wants me to become a bread giver to help distribute, to help readjust. I was looking at that word when I was studying for this sermon, readjust, re-add justice. God looks to, is trying to help us be people who re-add justice to the world. So the sit version of, this, of that part of the prayer is God gives all gifts. All good gifts are from God. And so um, once I've, uh, I have a house, a car, my money, my stuff, my toys. Once I've pr- provided for my family, I've satisfied all my needs. Uh, once I'm comfortable once I've followed my dreams and once I've secured my future, then I'll give the rest to the poor and needy. That's the sit version of this prayer. And so you might be absolutely thankful for what you have. But God wants to move you, wants to immerse you more in New Testament culture, in, in kingdom culture, where this, the come version of this prayer is, come join me in giving to the world. Ryan and I were talking about this, and, and it, it just hit me from things Ryan was saying, that Jesus probably prayed this prayer before he taught the disciples to pray it. So I can see Jesus out on the rock or out in the wilderness saying, my father, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. I think Jesus was praying this on a daily basis before he ever taught the disciples to pray this. And this is why Jesus can say things like, I am the bread of life. Because he knew he was God's gift to humanity that would sustain them and prosper them. I am the bread of life. And in some little way, God wants us to kind of say that too. 
We're like the little slices of life. We're, I'm a little slice of life. It's kind of corny. Baby doesn't want us to say that. <laughs> but something like that. We too are to be bread givers to the world. When you look back in the scriptures, you see that Abraham was called to be a blessing to the world. God says, Abraham, I have blessed you. So he says, Abraham, I have blessed you so that you in turn will be a blessing to the nations, to the rest of the world. We have the same call as Abraham. God gives to us so that we can make the hour in our daily bread spread to all of humanity. Now that's not, that's not an easy thing to do in our day and age, in our culture, because we are a rich culture. It's absolutely terrifying to most of us because we are saturated and immersed in this culture and we need to take some time and immerse ourselves in the kingdom culture through the Lord's Prayer and through practicing some of the parts of the Lord's Prayer. And so the come version of this prayer, of this part of the prayer is come be like Abraham. Come be like Abraham. And I'm going to skip... Uh, To the last quote. I'm going to skip to the last quote. This is also from the book on Howard Was. And this goes into the, this connects it up with what we, all that we have and mostly with money. When money and possessions are, situa are situated in a world of God's justice, they flourish and generate prosperity and guarantee a good life, such a possibility, however, is in profound tension with the way of money smarts that must have been a durable tempta temptation in that ancient culture as it is surely in a living, is a living seduction in our world. And then move to the next quote for me, please. No, the, the one after that. Although we can, let's, let me read this part too. We are in our world subject to a constant barrage of summons to privatized wealth that sets up pursuit of wealth over against the well-being of the community. Money and possessions. This is from a book by Money and Possessions by Walter Brueggemann. Let's stop there. Ah, good. And this from the other book. So, as you learn to pray this prayer, note that you necessarily offer your life to others. Put as offensively as we know how, Christianity is about your money, about economics. Salvation is material. Certainly, spirituality is about material things, but we believe nothing is more spiritual than money. Through, the, through learning to pray this prayer, we are taught that our money is not ours. 
Thus, we can be asked to share because what we have is shared. Lord, teach us the Lord's Prayer by Hauerwas. When you pray the Lord's Prayer in immersion in the kingdom culture, you continually circle around knowing that God gives us everything and everything he gives us is for everyone. And in the end, he gives us more so that we can become givers as well. Now, I know a lot of you are already on this journey. And I'm, I've been on this journey for a long time and I know a lot of you are trying things to be faithful with what God gives you and to turn it into kingdom currency and to turn it into investments for the kingdom. But I'm just going to go through a quick list of things that might be helpful or things that might get you either started or continue on the journey. And this is where we're going to go through a lot of the scripture passages. So the first, uh, first we have John the Baptist in Luke. And John the Baptist is trying talking to the people before Jesus comes. And what he says, what he recommends in terms of this understanding of bread, go ahead. What he recommends is, what sh- uh, they, the crowd says, what should we do then? John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share one with, with should share the one, should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. This is John the Baptist's suggestion. Maybe you think, oh, I've got all this bread that God gives me every day. Maybe I cut something in half. Maybe you take your shed and you say, boom, half of this is going to, for the poor. Maybe you take your closet and you say, I'm gonna take half of this and give it to those who need it. Maybe your pantry, maybe your bank account, maybe... Who knows, maybe you have enough cars to where you say, we're gonna take half the cars we have. We're gonna sell these half, this half, so other people can have bread. A person who took John the Baptist's advice, which is interesting, he may have heard John the Baptist speak. It's not written in scripture, but I think he might've, is Zacchaeus, and that's the other passage from Luke. But Zacchaeus, he was waiting for Jesus and Jesus went home with him to eat and they're sitting at the table eating their bread and Zacchaeus stands up and says, Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have created, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So maybe you decide I'm gonna give half. And you could take a something really small in your life and start that way. Um, When my kids were little, we would periodically drag all their possessions out of their room into the living room. And then we would sort through them and we would make piles, pile of purses, pile of, I had daughters, pile of dolls, pile of knickknacks, pile of, you name it, whatever they had, games, uh, all this stuff. And then we would say, okay, you've got this pile of purses. Why don't you pick out five purses? 
and put the rest over there. And we do this whole thing. And I'm like, oh, at first I'm like think, telling Kelly, I hope I'm not ruining my kids. I don't know what I'm doing, but I really want them to know how to control their possessions. And we went through it all and the kids loved it. And we made a, a pile of things they're gonna keep. And then they had a huge pile of things that they were gonna give away to those in need. And just for fun, I say, oh, now you can just pick any three things you want out of that pile before they go, just any three things. And they're like, yahoo. And they go and they pick three more things and they take their stuff and put it back in the room. Maybe you decide to do something like that. A few months later in seminary, I came home from school and I came home and the whole living room was full of stuff. My kids liked it so much. They're like, dad, let's do that again. I'm like, really? They're like, yeah, we want to do it again. Kids are more flexible than you think they are. And it's a good way to start. Okay, this next passage, Jesus in Matthew says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Maybe you find ways to store things differently. Or maybe you get rid of some part of your storage. A lot of us will have a storage shed, we'll have a garage, we'll, we may even have one of those storage units. Maybe you got several storage closets. Pick a place, stop storing, clean it out, say, I'm not storing anymore, maybe. Then the early church in Acts, they got, this caught fire in the early church of Acts and they did this. And we've all heard this passage before. Okay, I think... Maybe that's it then. That they were giving away. Um, is there a part before this? 30, maybe not. But in the early church of Acts, they were sharing all of their possessions and, and giving and selling it and giving to the needy so that none of them was in need. And they said, and all of them said, none of my possessions are mine. They belong to everybody. So maybe you try this on a small scale. Maybe you say, my lawnmower isn't mine. It's, it belongs to God. And then whoever needs it, you, you, you let them use it. Maybe you say, this car isn't mine. Who needs this car? Or who can I loan this to for whatever they need? Maybe some part of your life you say, I am no longer claiming ownership over this. And whatever happens to it will be because God wants to use it for somebody else. Now there's all kinds of other examples and I'm running out of time, so I'm gonna skip over a lot of them. I'll just go real quickly over them. We won't need to put the scriptures up there, but maybe you, uh, Peter says, show hospitality. Maybe you show hospitality. In the book of Hebrews, it says, 
that the people gave, let their possessions be seized by the Romans and didn't worry about it because they knew they had better and long-lasting possessions. Maybe you take and write up a portfolio of your better and long-lasting possessions. Find out what those are. Write up a new portfolio. Post it on your refrigerator. All right, I want to end uh, this with a story. I was reading from in the letter of John when I was younger and I was going to college. And in John, he says, if you see someone in need of worldly food or possessions and you don't give to them, how is the love of God in you? So that got spinning around in my head and I was praying the Lord's prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And then uh, during the, this time, there was a huge famine in Ethiopia. This is back in like the 80s, huge famine. And we were watching it on TV, <laughs> strange. But it really tugged at our hearts and really tugged at my heart. And so I started thinking about this and I started thinking about daily bread and I started thinking about God, Jesus saying, don't worry about tomorrow, just worry about today. And I, so I said to Kelly, hey, Kel, <laughs> poor Kelly, how about this idea? We take our insurance money, which is obviously for tomorrow, and we may never even need it. And we take that money and we stop having insurance and we give that money to the Ethiopian people who are in famine because they obviously need food right now. Somehow Kelly said, okay. So we did it. We totally stopped having insurance and we gave the money to Ethiopia. And I'm thinking, this is great. This really feels good. Well, I was going to school one day a few months after we started doing this and I rode a motorcycle to school uh, and went to classes. I was a religious studies major. I had a Buddhism class. So I rode my, mo my motorcycle to Buddhism class and I was riding home from Buddhism class going 50 miles an hour down the street. I checked my mirror and when I looked around, there was a white car right here. So I'm going 50 miles an hour, look, white, bam, I fly. I got knocked out. I, I have no idea. I just, what I remember is look, white, and then it goes black. Apparently, I flew through the air, spinning many times, hit the street, I must have hit my head somehow because I was totally knocked out. A weird thing happened while I was knocked out. This is just a little aside, but this is the weird thing. This voice came to me and said, Dan, you're in nirvana. Because I just left Buddhism class. So, and, and nirvana is the Buddhist heaven. And this voice said, Dan, you are in nirvana. I'm like, no, I can't be in nirvana. I was, I was aiming for heaven. What am I doing in nirvana? And uh, I'm like, no, I just can't believe that. And the voice says, yes, you're in nirvana. 
and I, I didn't want to believe it. And so I said, no, I'm not in Nirvana. I'm not in Nirvana. Of course, I wake up in the street saying, I'm not in Nirvana. I'm not in Nirvana. This whole crowd of people around me. I'd been out for like 10 or 15 minutes. And I look back now and I think, yeah, maybe I wasn't in Nirvana, but I was. Nirvana is a place of where suffering has ended and death has ended, death and rebirth for the Buddhist. Maybe I was trying to get there in some ways. Maybe I was trying to end suffering. Maybe I was trying to end death by sharing my money with the Ethiopians. The reason these are connected is because I had no insurance. So I woke up in the I had no idea whether this was my fault or not. I woke up in the street after saying I wasn't in Nirvana. The first thing I thought about was, oh God, in myself I said, oh God. Yeah, time's up. Of course, I don't know how to stop this either. And that was the end, sorry. But it almost is the end. This is where prayer and life come together. The first thing I did when I woke up was started praying. Because I said, oh God, I gave all my money to the Ethiopians. And I'm laying in the middle of the street. And boy, does my body hurt. And my head hurts. And the ambulance is here. Oh God. Isn't this what we're all afraid of? What if I follow God and then he doesn't show up? Something happens. I'm in need. Now, God doesn't always show up in the same way, but God showed up. Because I hit somebody square on at 50 miles an hour in a motorcycle, which destroyed my motorcycle. And I walked home that day. I walked home from the hospital to my house. I had broken nothing. Nothing was wrong with me other than my entire body was sore for a whole week. But God had looked out for me. Maybe that's a little too radical for you, but maybe not. Maybe you're at that place where you need to take another step. That's a big step. Maybe you sacrifice something that you see as necessary for your future so that you can share bread today. Maybe. Let's close in prayer.